Every magic trick consists of three parts or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. Welcome to episode 14 of the Filmotomy podcast. Today I am joined by our gracious host, Robin Wright. Hello there. Uh, B. Garner. Hi. And Joel Melendez. Hi, everybody. And uh, we are going to be talking two things to this morning, or this afternoon for you guys over in the UK. We're going to be talking about the Oscar nominations, and then, of course, the big thing we'll be talking about is Christopher Nolan and his career to this point and uh, what we think and everything. So, all right, well, let's jump in then to the Oscar nominations. So the, they announced those uh, on, on Tuesday morning, and we had some surprises and some predictable <laughs> nominations. B, it sounds like you have uh, something in particular you want to say. Okay, I watched yesterday, I watched uh, Free Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I loved. It was really good. And then I, I uh, then I watched Lady Bird, and I was so disappointed by Lady Bird. So I don't know how it's a best picture contender. It's just, it was such a letdown. I just felt really, really annoyed by it. Um, it's... And I know everyone's going to hate me, so it's okay. It's fine. It's just, you know, I, I'm. it's like with the whole Dark Knight reference here, you know. Uh, I'm not I'm not the uh, reviewer y- you want, but I am the reviewer <laughs> you need. <laughs> <laughs> In film Twitter, usually it's the other way around. Like, they love Lady Bird, but they were let down by free billboards, you know, because of all the the problems it has but i like your reaction you know it's 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 a curious one it's really yeah i just found the character of ladybird really annoying and uh i don't know whether that's because she reminds me a bit too much of my sister so <laughs> my younger sister who is kind of that age so okay. i was just like oh I, yeah I was just like, that girl, gosh, she needs some time out. 
Well, I know there was a little bit of controversy on film Twitter about Lady Bird, um, the first of the nine nominees for Best Picture to really get kicked in the gut after the Tuesday announcement. Uh, oh, after the Tuesday announcement. Yeah, yeah wasn't after the, what the Tuesday happened with the Bird? Yeah, because <laughs> I saw this. I was scrolling through before work the other night, and I saw there was a hubbub about the fact that Lady Bird presents itself as sort of the, we live in uh, poverty but mm-hmm. then people were arguing, no, they don't. They don't live in poverty. They don't know what real poverty is. Well, yes, when you compare their lives to the lives in the Florida Project, which didn't get a Best Picture nomination, uh, which is bizarre. Um, yeah, this Ladybird really isn't the, uh, the same sort of poverty as of course. standards at all. So, yeah. Uh, I, I can understand that criticism. Yeah. Um, what did you guys think of the nominations overall? Well, apart from the Florida Project, which Bianca mentioned there, which I thought I wanted to get in, but it did seem like it was fading away. Um, what I'm going to say quickly is that in the last podcast, Bianca said Paul Thomas Anderson might get in for Best Director, and he did. So yeah. That was, yeah, that was an excellent Paul. Excellent. <laughs> I know these things. I've got a, a hunch. <laughs> but and will he, no, will he win? Oh, yeah. Yeah. God. Oh, I, I was going to say I could do my Judy Dench impression, but we might. We'll leave that for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we ended up with nine nominees for Best Picture. Um, and I think overall they did a pretty good job. I mean, yeah, they certainly left off a couple that were more deserving. Um, but the big six, of course, got in being, of course, Call Me By Your Name, uh, Dunkirk, um, Three Billboards, The Shape of Water, Lady Bird, and, oh, man. Get Out. And Get Out. And then, uh, of course, everybody was thinking, what are going to be the other big three? And they ended up being... Darkest Hour, um, mm. Phantom Thread, and The Post. Now, Phantom <laughs> Thread completely threw me for a loop. I was not thinking that it had any sort of um, leeway at all, and here it got in not only for Best Picture, but also a nomination for Paul Thomas Anderson for Best Director, which I'm, I have mixed feelings about because I haven't seen Phantom Thread yet, but I have been such a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan so I'm good with that. You know, I'm really happy to see him there. But, of course, the one I'm most um, relieved about is, of course, for Christopher Nolan, which I'm sure uh, you are too, Robin. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, as soon as I heard that, I switched it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and I still, and I still, I said I was going to let Dunkirk go, but now I, I, I still think it's, it's still my number one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that there now. I'm telling you, it's going to win. Mm, we'll see. As long as it's not <laughs> Ladybird, then I think I'll be uh-huh. fine. Because that is just not not the best picture, like, film. It's a good film. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's just, it doesn't do anything for me visually. Whereas Dunkirk uh-huh. is just, like I said, it's just a, a visual masterpiece. It's just so much is going on there. I think Lady Bird 
uh, three billboards are dead now. That's what I think. That's a bit sad about three billboards. It's typical of me. I always end up coming too late to the the party, um, yeah. and uh, being the left left around trying to be like, oh, yeah, it's really good, and everyone's just like, no, we hate it now. <laughs> so it's it's the whole thing of when I you know wanted a Furby and I never got a Furby, and when I eventually got a, ver- a Furby, you know, yeah. everyone had moved on to Pogs. So sorry. Bring some <laughs> child baggage from my childhood all the way into this podcast, but you know. <laughs> well, some other surprises that I noticed. Well, okay, so this one isn't a surprise, but it still is sort of a surprise, and that is the fact that Denzel Washington did, in fact, get nominated a second year in a row. This time for Roman J. Israel Esquire, and the the reason why it still feels kind of surprising to me is because nobody was talking about that movie, and nobody was talking about his performance this year. And all the other great performances that got ignored for another film for Denzel, and this year, he doesn't stand any chance of winning. And that's what seems so weird about this, because last year with Fences, we were all hoping he was going to beat Casey Affleck, especially after the SAG um, win, and that just didn't happen. What was that, Robin? I'm just saying, I'm sure it should have beat him up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been entertaining. Yeah. The Academy are not, yeah. not racist. They're just the endorse assault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Clearly. Yeah. And then in Best Adapted Screenplay, we did see, in fact, a nomination for Logan. Um, so that would made me very happy. What did you guys think about that? I mean, you guys all saw Logan, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, that was a real surprise. I didn't think that they were going to go with that. I thought, like we were discussing, where I thought maybe it would be Wonder or some something really. Yeah. Yeah. It just it was a really good surprise. So fingers crossed there. But I have a feeling it's probably going to go to Call Me by Your Name. Yeah, he seems like a shoe, and James Ivory does. I mean, he's what ninety five years old or something. Eighty nine, I think. Eighty nine. Hell, he is. Either way, like, yeah. he's up there, and, and the fact that he's still pending, you know, these scripts is amazing. Mm. Um, and then for the best documentary feature, the winner at the um, the other week's award for, for the Documentary Guild, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they awarded Jane. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was um, the Producers Guild. Yeah, at the Producers Guild, they awarded Jane best documentary, and then the Oscars turned around and ignored it. Mm-hmm. You know, they hear and, National Geographic. Probably. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> a couple of these, I'm really shocked that got in. Like, I didn't think Abacus had any chance. Um, I'm glad to see Last Man in Aleppo there, though. Called it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I'm. Su- yeah, I'm a bit surprised by this. It's a really, it's really hard when it comes to documentary. So. Mm-hmm. I yeah. feel like Faces Places is just going to easily win this now. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Me too. And then the fact that in Best Foreign Language Film, um, In the Fade was left out is also really surprising. Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise, because that, that film had won a few precursors as well, So it was, and it did well in Cannes, but you know, sometimes they, they pick a different five, don't they? 
Yeah. Um, jumping down to visual effects, the fact that Kong Skull Island got in there is just like a personal victory. <laughs> no! No! I'm so annoyed by that. <laughs> How? What about More- Blade Runner 2049 is going to win? Okay. If, if it if Kong wins that, then I go to eat my own hat. So, <laughs> yeah. More than annoyed by the fact that by the fact that Kong got in, is the fact that all five nominees are very CGI movies. You know, like there's a lot of CGI. They they went uh, full CGI and ignore everything that's practical visual effects, yeah. like in yeah. Dunkirk or in the shape of water. Uh, you know, I, I was a little annoyed by that. And for winning, I don't know, guys. I think finally the Apes franchise is going to win uh, Best Visual Effects. I heard a rumor that they even create a software to... Uh, no, a rumor, not, not a rumor, a fact that they create a software to, to create trees that have... Uh, unique characteristics uh you know there's a scene uh well most scenes in war for the planet of the apes have trees and Mm. most of those trees even if you don't believe it or not are fake wow i did not know that yeah yeah that that was that's awesome (laughs) really so were they were they plastic no like like the song (laughs) cgi cgi but very good cgi i don't know that that, that's awesome for me yeah yeah that was a that was a radio head for all our (laughs) i love that song i love that video too yeah um i couldn't help it yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Fake trees. That's the first thing that came into my head. <laughs> yeah. So the only other major um, thing that I at least want to mention for the um, Oscar nominees is the fact that in Best Animated Short Film, there's a little film called Dear Basketball that was produced by none other than Kobe Bryant. Oh, really? So now we have Kobe Bryant as a Oscar nominee. Oh, and and the fact that um, uh, Mary J. Blige is mm. the first ever to be nominated for an acting Oscar and a music Oscar at the same time. Oh, that's quite oh. cool. Yeah, because she was nominated for, of course, Best um, Supporting Actress for Mudbound. And then she was also nominated for her song, Mighty River, for original song. Yeah, and nobody has ever done that before. It's got to be first for everything, so well done, huh? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So did you guys have anything else you wanted to mention about the uh, reactions? Yes. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I, I, original score, I had a real um, problem with the fact that Star Wars The Last Jedi is on there. Is yeah, we've got Dunkirk, Phantom Fred, The Shape of Water, Free Billboards, and then Star Wars. And w- how many times has the score for Star Wars been nominated? Um, okay, yeah, seems to do it automatically, don't they? It's just, yeah. it's <laughs> yeah, it's John Williams. I mean, they just love John Williams. Yeah, but the score's not any different from the other film. I just, it's the same sort of music. The, 
It's mm-hmm. just you could take any um, score from any Star Wars film, and you wouldn't be able to really tell which one it was from, unless you heard like Jar Jar in the background, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> then you would know. But yeah, it's not. I, it doesn't feel original, does it? It's more of a. There's a lot of um, rearrangement and stuff on there. It's a bit. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that Johnny like... Greenwood got in though. Johnny Greenwood. That is a. I don't know if you've heard that. Heard that score, but it is absolutely brilliant. Oh, no. I haven't yet, but I'm a big, big fan of Radiohead. So I love the fact that somebody from Radiohead is now an Oscar nominee. That's two Radiohead references. (laughs) (laughs) Which is is weird, because my my computer is not okay. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Bum, bum, bum. That is the best fun I've heard all day. (laughs) I was going to add about uh, Arena Score that, yeah, I was bothered too by, by the Star Wars nomination because even though they sound pretty similar, all of them, they, they always have a, a tiny uh, difference that make them unique, the, the, the Star Wars scores by John Williams. Mm. But this one, uh, it didn't feel special. The, the, the Last Jedi score, it didn't feel special as the Force Awakens one or even the Phantom Menace one. Eek. Uh, but when you have, you know, an amazing score by Dario Marianelli in Darkest Hour, you know, it's it's kind of yeah. frustrating not seeing that nominated, but uh, going with the secure nomination like, oh, it's John Williams, let's vote for him. You know, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, I feel bad for Marianelli because he deserved this one very much and he could even win if, if he was nominated. So, yeah. I was thinking that maybe um, Mother, Dar- um, oh gosh, I can't, it's not Clint Marsh, uh, Mansell, is Mansell. it? Yes, it's someone else who did the, the score for Mother, uh, jo- Johan Jonasson. Um, oh, oh, right. oh, yeah. oh, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, apologies. <laughs> His, I, I love the music in Mother, so I would... I just wanted to get nominated for one thing other than a Razzie. So. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. How how can they say Jennifer Lawrence is her performance is worthy of a Razzie? She's amazing. Oh. I I literally had to just slam my computer screen down and and go and ha- take a few deep breaths when I read that. So. <laughs> yeah. So annoying. Yeah, I heard about that, and I just saw. I just rolled my eyes. I'm like, yeah, stupid Razzies. But then I went and checked them anyway, and I noticed that under worst film, they left out some things that were more deserving, like the Snowman and mm. Pirates of the Caribbean: Dead Men Tell No Tales, which is honestly probably the worst film I've seen this year. Ouch! Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joel, I mean, they <laughs> stopped trying. It's literally like two and a half hours of pure shit. <laughs> <laughs> they stopped trying after the, the first one, I think. Yeah. Well, that that didn't help that uh, Gore Verbinski wasn't back. I mean, he did a cure for wellness, and that didn't get well received, so maybe he should have come back for the pirates instead. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I feel that with every film I do, I want to be uh, pushing myself. I want to be moving on from what I've done in, in the past, building on what I've done, not throwing things away. 
but trying to push forward a little in, in a direction. But I also try to not be self-conscious about that. I don't want to do something because I have, specifically because I haven't done it before. We used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. There's really only one film director working today whose name is synonymous with movies that excite, enthrall and entertain in equal measure. The next time someone tells you that Hollywood is dumbing down and aiming for the lowest common denominator, just point them in the direction of whatever Christopher Nolan is doing next. Well, we got this far, farther than any human in history. Oh, not far enough. Make it count. Where's the mountains? Those aren't mountains. They're waves. Some of the things that you have, uh, have put on film over your career are, 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 are simply, to put it very bluntly, are, are things no-one has ever seen on film. Do you have a story and then think, I'm going to create that visual imagery mm. around that story? Or do you have, a, for example, a little black book of these out-there ideas <laughs> and, and yeah. think, I'm going to find a way to fit that into a story? No, I try to be the other way around. I try to be all about story. Um, and then, as I'm writing, create visuals or situations that I actually don't know how to do. And I try to take my director's hat off when I'm writing and write things that I, I then come to as a director and I, I say, I have no idea how to do this. I have no idea what this will look like, how to visualise it. Because that's when you know you're challenging yourself. And it's through that challenge you then put together a great team of people and through that challenge you find something that you haven't done before, you find something fresh and, and different. And that's really the, the fun part of filmmaking, that, that challenge. What is your first experience watching a Christopher Nolan film. Do you remember which was the first? Memento. Mm, yes, yes, same. Mine was uh, Batman Begins. I was 11 years old. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, man. Wow. <laughs> and did you guys know back then that he was going to turn out to be this, um, this perfect mix of auteur and commercial director? No, I mean... He followed, when he followed that up with Insomnia, I kind of thought, right, he's going to be sort of make these kind of, not quite indie films, but sort of low-key. He had his own unique style, obviously, and the way he shot both of those films. I didn't think he was going to go into the blockbuster arena. No, no, but, exactly. But, yes. he did, but he did that, and it was like, even with criticisms with the first Batman, that, you know, leave Batman alone now and all that stuff. And he, and he, pulled, he pulled it off. And then he, with the prestige, he kind of, Went back a bit again, but there's still the visuals there. He mixed it up a bit, you know, and he's um, experimented even with when you get to Interstellar, which I know some people like more than others. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was still he was still experimenting, and you can't you can't fault him for that. Yeah, my first experience was also Memento. Um, my friend Charles, who I was like really really good friends with at the time, he was. Um, 
a college student up in Duluth, and he had a roommate that was, like, obsessed with Memento. He would watch it, like, almost every single day. And so he told me about this movie, and I'm like, well, what's the big deal? And he goes, well, just the fact that, you know, he watches it every fucking day, and I'm getting sick of it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it must be really, really good then. And so I checked it out, and I was like, what the hell? Because at first I'm like, I don't know if I understand this. It took me a while to figure it out, and I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is genius. But the yeah. weird part was, so by the time I realized, I think by the time I was watching Memento, he was already releasing Insomnia, and I don't think I was even aware that he directed that. And so for me, it was like I went and saw Insomnia, and it just felt like this really well-made film starring Robin Williams and Robert, no, Al Pacino. But it didn't seem to have a signature on it yet, especially when you compare it to Memento. Mm. Well, I think it's as well. It got Robin Williams and Al Pacino, which and, and back then people thought uh, Memento was his debut. Don't forget, a lot of people didn't even know about following. They thought Memento mm-hmm. was his first, and, and to get Al Pacino and um, Robin Williams in your, you know, quote unquote second film, um, showed that even though. Perhaps I'm going to talk about the the Oscars again, how they kind of didn't give him best original screenplay, but it made a massive impact to get that cast, you know, and then to get the rights to do Batman as well. So it was that memento, that one film that just like launched him and gave him all this, you know, free reign, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's made, he's made Hollywood a lot of money as well. He's made the industry a lot of money. Well, when you guys saw Batman Begins, did you like it at first, or were you like, what the hell is this? This isn't a Batman movie. I really <sighs> liked it. I, I, I didn't... I thought, until then, I'd only seen, like, the dreadful Batman and Robin film. <laughs> uh, so, that was a vast improvement. Um, but, yeah, I, I found it uh, really, really good. Like, it had a good origin story. And um, I just what I liked about it was the 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 way he'd created the city with the sort of the whole look and feel to it. It felt very gothicy, but it mm. didn't feel like over the top like um, Tim Burton's film work. You know his versions of Gotham were. It felt like it was rooted in real real life. Like, it wasn't a stretch. I wasn't thinking it was just, like, another comic book movie. It had that element of realism. And I don't... I don't... I think The Dark Knight is probably the best out of that trilogy. Uh, And Batman Begins is possibly the weakest one. But it's still really, really good. I don't... I I just like the whole... How he managed to save the whole Batman... Because that was just dead in the water, wasn't it? With after Batman and Robin, with the whole, uh, oh, the yeah, awful, think... awful puns. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably he probably alienated a lot of Batman fans as well, Nolan, because it, it wasn't people probably expecting oh Batman, Batman, but it, it really isn't about Batman as, as such, is it? It's the, no, as you it... said, the origin origin story. So to do that was risky. But he, he did it. He pulled it off, and 
you know, it, maybe it should have been called Commissioner Gordon Begins because <laughs> in the end it was, it was kind of about about that at the end because he was he was kind of the hero, wasn't he? But mm. um, yeah, I, I I don't like the third one. I, I saw tried to do the origin story again and it didn't really work. You know, apart from Bane, obviously. But Dark Knight yeah. is by far the best, yeah. Yeah, The Dark Knight is an absolute masterpiece. And, you know, when you think about how groundbreaking that film is in so many different ways, like the, for the comic book films, for um, some of the actors who emerged from it, and the fact that the Oscars changed the way that they nominate Best Picture, it's a direct response because everybody thought The Dark Knight deserved to get nominated for Best Picture, and it wasn't. And then in 2009, they changed it, and suddenly there's nine nominees. And we basically, you know, or I mean, 10, 10 nominees. And we've basically been on that way ever since. And the interesting thing is, is that they changed the rules to get comic book movies into the best picture lineup. We've had some worthy films, and now they, they're back to ignoring them. So it's really strange. Yeah, it's a strange line. Um, but, you know, the thing about, like, The Dark Knight was that I just remember the build-up to that being massive because, you know, Heath Ledger died in on January 22nd, 2008, and then the film was released in July that year, and by that point, there was hype that was like a freight train. And, yeah. you know, when it came out, it was immediate. I mean, it, it became one of the highest grossing films of all time. And um, I think it jumped to number one on IMDb's top 250 even for like a little while. And, um, I, you know, for me, the best thing about The Dark Knight is the fact that Batman is not even the primary character. Mm. It's the Joker. Yeah. And, the, the, you know... And the fact that, like, we don't even have an origin story for the Joker. He just shows up out of nowhere <laughs> and, and doesn't even have any reasons. Oh, it's so scary as well because it's rooted in that um, the the whole post-9-11 sort of terror oh, yeah. feel to it. Yeah. And it's uh, just the chilling scene where he tortures that man who's been sort of uh, pretending to be Bat- Batman. Um, yeah. And it's probably more disturbing than any anything else in any horror film because we've seen it before, you know, not with, you know, a, a masked man and a man in makeup and everything, but we have seen those hostage films before. And it's that... Um, it's... it's um, so brilliant to think that Nolan could take something that is all you know blending two genres really because it's a it's a hyper reality but it's also a comic book movie and that sort of almost I find that more disturbing in a way because it's just it's so it seems so real and we've seen you know those events happen before acts of terrorism and and you yeah. know uh, it works so well, uh, but when you were saying about the um, public reaction to The Dark Knight, I saw it on the opening weekend, and it was the first time that I've been to a cinema where people clapped after the film had finished. 
Wow. Uh, and I, it was amazing. Like, it was, I felt like it was the event. Like, I was part of something. Um, so I, I haven't been in that atmosphere. Everybody was silent afterwards. And then everybody started clapping. And it's like, you know, Christopher Nolan's not around. He's not going to hear you clapping. But it just <laughs> felt like the right thing to do. Um, it just, the you could almost hear like a pin drop in in the cinema after the, the film had finished. It was just that yeah. moment where, oh, you've seen something. And everybody was had the same reaction. You know, so... I don't think you really get that with films nowadays. So very rarely getting that. Maybe with this new Star Wars movie, but you very rarely get that sort of everybody's. Yeah, so I think it's blown away. I think by it surprised it. it surprised audiences as well because, like Al said, there was a build-up because of Heath Ledger's passing, and everyone went, "Oh, the second Batman's coming," you know. Um, and because of how sedate the first one was, this one was like a proper spectacle, and it was. Although it was, you know, it was sad that he died, and the Joker was the, definitely the star of the show. But Nolan's technical, the vision, and the, every scene was memorable. Every bit of the story, it just transcended any sort of sympathy. No, no disrespect to, to him, but the film wasn't just, you know, about that. And he would have won the Oscar anyway, because it's, I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest performances over the last twenty years. Sometimes I watch it and I'm trying to figure out, is he just? Is he just acting silly, or he's like Jack Nicholson was, you know? Uh, but you watch him, and his mouth is licking his lips, and every single thing that he Fletcher does, if you took the makeup off, you'd be astonished. It it just blows me away. That absolutely blows me away. But it doesn't steal the entire film. He's still Nolan, still has room to, you know, the 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 lorry, the lorry scene and Batman flying and everything about. It. Even at the end, when it gets a bit sort of, you know, the whole Two Face theme. It goes heavy on that, but it's still great because the score, and you just sort of get swept up in it, you know. And the, and the last... real heroes are the people of Gotham. Um, yeah. We see that with the fairies. They're the mm-hmm. real heroes because that is such an important message as well, um, which this is with what Nolan does so well, is people being united together and standing against hate. You know, yeah. and oppression. Whether it's the fact that you know, in Interstellar, the pl- our planet's dying, and we all band together and become united in order to. Um, he's always thinking of the bigger picture. You know, people, the old person may die along the way, but there's always hope in his films, which is a really sort of reassuring thing that you don't often see enough of. Well, you know, that brings up a question that I wanted to mention. Um, what do you guys think of this whole um, dead wife motif that he keeps having in every film? I'm oh. worried about his wife. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it shows up in almost every single film. I bet you he would have done it in Dunkirk had there been an opportunity. Yes. Yeah. I mean, is he trying to... What do you think he's doing that for? Is it for sympathy? I mean, I don't understand it. I think he has trouble writing woman. I don't know. Yeah, possibly. Because if you... I I was doing a list of the best performances from Nolan movies, and unfortunately, 
most are men. The, mm. the only woman I, I could, uh, you know, argue for best performances in in a Nolan movie are from Interstellar. Uh, and Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, and, and the little girl, uh, Mackenzie Foy. Mm. So, yeah, that's a problem. I think that's the only problem we have with, with Nolan, that he somehow somehow doesn't know uh, how to write uh, great uh, woman roles. So I think that's, that's a problem. That maybe that's why he, he writes them off instead of writing something, uh, you know, uh, good for them. I don't know. That, that, that's what I think. I suppose, though, Anne Hathaway as Catwoman is quite, is quite a good Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. It's quite a big, um, strong character as well. Yeah, and El- is it Ellen Page in um, Inception? Mm-hmm. Even Mami Cotty had Inception as well. Yes, I mean, uh, it's a shame. I would like to see maybe Nolan just do a film with all-female uh, cast um, and see what he could do there. Um, but yeah, that is something I've never really picked up on before. But now that you mention it, I yeah, it's a bit... It's a bit irritating, but... It's, it's good that he hasn't yeah. been criticised for it, though. He, he probably has, but it's good that we're not criticising him as such for that, that, he, that something may be missing from his... You know, the way... Like, Tarantino kind of got a bit of criticism for it until he made Kill Bill. Um, I don't know if Nolan needs to do that. I don't, he, he seems to be OK with where he is, and he hasn't had a lot of, you know, oh, he's a sexist, oh, yeah, it's women. Thank God. You know, cause some directors do it in a certain way, but... Maybe it wouldn't hurt him to, you know, delve into oh, yeah. the female side. He's certainly not portraying women in a negative light. No. Um, even the character of uh, uh, Mal uh, mm-hmm. yeah. in, in Inception, she's painted in a sympathetic light as well because mm-hmm. she's. Um, it's not her fault that she, you know, um, she becomes drawn into that world and it, it, you know she becomes an addict to the, the dream world so it's not not through any fault of her own and you can tell that she's a good mother and she she's being supportive of um cob throughout you know their their lives together so it is a real sense of tragedy but um yeah uh maybe if christopher nolan is listening he could <laughs> i've got ideas you know, I'm more than happy to collaborate, Nolan. So, <laughs> you know, a female female character that came to mind that I think actually does uh, stand out in a really great way is Scarlett Johansson in The Prestige, because mm. when you think about what she's doing in that role, you know, her job is to infiltrate the other side, right? But then we see that she's kind of double playing them both, and like. She's really kind of the one in control. Well, yeah, that's just like exception, isn't it? With her, her mouth, she's she's kind of driving him. She's like she's like his his um his instincts are, are almost <clears throat> even right to the very end. You know, the fact he stares and so they're maybe not physical presence, but certainly a um, powerful inspiration. Yeah, an emotional context. Yeah, emotional. Yeah. Um, so also, then, a, a trivia, trivia for you. 
Yeah. Uh, in I don't know if anyone's seen following the first film. No, I'm hoping no. to watch that. It's, yeah. The the secondary character in that is called Cobb. Oh. Also, in the background, I, I posted it on Twitter last year. Um, there's a guy who walks into a room and there's a Batman logo sticker on the door. So it's like there's, there's stuff in there that you, wow. you almost can see. You can almost see his future, Nolan, where he wants to go. Batman yeah. fan, you know. Yeah. Cobb. What if he's actually a time traveller and he's already... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, OK. Oh, well, yeah, because... The film's in black and white. Hang on. Oh, my God. <laughs> what do you Whoa. think his, his, his uh, whole obsession with time comes from? I mean, do you think that something happened in his life that he, I don't know, like some kind of deep-seated regret? Or or is it I've just... I've already said he's a time traveler. <laughs> so, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. He's sworn to secrecy. <laughs> I just think he's really tuned into that, into his cinematic journey. And I think... And he executes it really well. You can see these themes continue, can't you? Even Dunkirk, yeah. you know, the time, the three time shifts there. Yeah, and and with uh, Interstellar, the way that like you know when they go through the wormhole and how much time it takes to get there, and then how long uh, you know time on a planet is versus time on Earth, and oh, that's it. What is? Yeah, when he sees how old his daughter is, that scene. Oh my god, uh, it's heartbreaking. Oh, it is, think, yeah. Because it's hard to comprehend. Yeah. What's more heartbreaking is the, the crew member they leave behind in the ship. Mm-hmm. And they've been down there for 20 minutes or seven minutes or some silly time like that. And when they get back up, he's been on his own for mm. what's essentially been 20 years. <sighs> and that is, you know, just one of those... That's what's so interesting about Nolan is the... You know the idea of what our what the characters go through, and how you know how the personal effect that that would have on them. Like with uh, Inception, the fact that they go they when they're talking about the dreams, and it's like we'll be dreaming for like what is essentially hundreds of years. Uh, every, you know when they keep going down and down, deeper and deeper. It's a really sort of crazy feel it's just amazing how he does that and it's the smallest details as well it that's what's so magical about his films so I I just um, I was just thinking another theme for me is the the role of the father is the almost the duty of a parent as well it's something that keeps reoccurring throughout his films um, especially the you know the Batman uh, trilogy, uh, the regret that there is for you know not being or you know losing a parent and not being there for them and how that affects us. I don't know Nolan's personal life, but he does deal with this, the loss of a parent or a, you know a loss of a parental figure. Um, which, you know, is quite a powerful theme to have, and especially in a in a blockbuster movie as well. You don't really get that sort of depth to it. So that's that's just something I keep picking up on. Even in Dunkirk, there was, you know, the loss of 
um, a pair, you know, just responsibility of a parent. And uh, I've forgotten the, the gentleman on the boat when he, oh, when he yeah. talked. Yeah, Mark when talk, yeah, when he's discussing the loss of his, you know, his oldest son. Um, it's just that smallest little bit of detail in the dialogue. And you know why he's, you know, his motivation behind everything. So it, this is just, just how amazing, how much depth and how well developed and fleshed out each character is. Even the uh, side characters are. So, I just admire that in Nolan's work. Uh, just, I was going to mention quickly about 2008, the, the Oscars thing, and uh, the reader got in. I know people hate the reader now, but um, <laughs> what we got, what you've got to remember is it was that wasn't just like, well, there was a bit of a bit of marketing, obviously, but what also happened is the two of the producers which is very sad, Sidney Pollock and Anthony Mangella, they both passed away, uh, um, and that that had an impact as well. I suppose the same way Heath Ledger, you know, but um, that's probably what drove that into the best picture race as well. So you've got those two are massive names in the industry as well, to, to lose both of them. Uh, so that's just what I wanted to add, really, because the reader, I, I don't think it's a particularly good film. I think that makes far better. I think Wally's far better. So, but that's so the two big producers and the directors, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 2008 was one of those years where there was uh, at least a few other films that were completely shut out that deserved to be in that uh, race, like The Wrestler from Darren Aronofsky mm. and um, Changeling from um, Clint Eastwood. It wasn't even a particularly strong year. Um, Milk was, was, was okay. Um, Frost Nixon was okay. You know, it was a bit, bit of a flat. They just sort of gave up on spectacle. Yeah. Really. It was a bit, bit of a shame. But um, Nolan did get the DGA nomination that year as well, obviously. Yeah, it's strange that he, he the you know, and I think I mentioned this on the last episode, the fact that he just has been ignored by the Oscars as much as he has, and that it took Dunkirk before he finally got in. And maybe it's because they just have a, a thing with um, World War Two, you know, and there's always that joke. You want to win, you want to win an Oscar. You got to do a, a World War Two film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting that they've also gone just to bring about to the Oscars for a second. They've also gone with Darkest Hour. Um, so you you're, you must you're right about that. There must be a magical set your film in World War Two if you want it to have you know be nominated for an Oscar. So yeah, yeah. Well, Darkest Hour, like two two and a half months ago, was the like the frontrunner for like a week. So it was they were saying it was going to go head to head with Dunkirk. It hasn't turned out that way, but but Darkest Hour somehow has managed to hold on. And just sneak back in, and look, unlike you know the Florida Project and Itonia. Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. All right, so Joel, um, you know, I I noticed you were just kind of sitting back a little, uh, so uh, just 
thought I'd give you the floor. Uh, just what do you think of Nolan? I mean, what's your, you know, kind of your impression of him to of his career to this point? And really, you know, what what ones do you watch the most of his films and stuff? Well, he he's my he's one of my favorite directors all time. So that says a lot. Uh, <clears throat> I remember watching Batman Begins back in 2005. Like I said, I was 11 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in that moment, I, I wasn't paying attention to who was directing the movie because it was Batman, you know. It, I love Batman. I, 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 have, I have always loved him. So, in that moment, I didn't really care if it was Nolan or any other director uh, doing it. But I was excited to see what he did next because, you know, there's a cliffhanger in the movie where we know that the next villain is going to be the Joker. So, yeah, I was looking forward to The Dark Knight. And then when when Heath Ledger dies, uh, it, uh, it kind of, you know, makes me want to see the movie more because I want to see why... Uh, you know, there were rumors that he was so in, inserted to the to the character of the Joker that he, you know, uh, uh, killed himself. I, I hope this doesn't well. Actually, okay. any of the uh, no. Huh. You know, I can interject. Um, I know a lot of what happened there. Mm-hmm. So, do you mind if I just kind of tell the quick story of that? Yeah, because we, as a young kid you know i was 13 when when that happened that that were th- those were the rumors that that were in were saying that stuff that that he he was so immersed that that he killed himself because he thought he was a joker and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff and and you know that, that that kind of troubled me but at the same time make me curious about the character yeah because damn he, he had to be so you know so crazy to 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 go to that yeah. that extreme well, so, here's so, yeah, what, interject. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, here's the real the real story, what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he was on set of the Dark Knight filming, and he was method acting, right? So he was getting into the head of the Joker uh, to a degree that cannot be quantified. You know, it's the kind of thing where you're like, you can you can put yourself in that idea of what must be like to try and get into character, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, the joke, the Joker is one of these uh, lunatics, you know? He's an absolute lunatic. And usually when we think of lunatics, we think of people we hate, you know, people that we would love to punch in the face or shoot in the face. And, you know, he's trying to get into this character. And he spent all this time performing. And, the, you know, and a lot of times what happens is there's no separation between the real actor and the character they're portraying, they sort of can kind of blend together after a while. Cause if you, uh, especially for these method actors, you know, if all you do almost all day long is try to think of yourself as this person, then it can affect you. And so what happened was he, they wrapped on the film and he immediately started filming another movie this one was over in england and that was terry yes. gilliam's uh, 
Imaginarium of Doctor... That, yep, that's right. The Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. And what happened was, he was getting jet-lagged because of the whole um, difference between England and the United States. So he had a very hard time sleeping. And he became addicted to sleeping pills. And what happened is that while he was on leave from the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus for one weekend, he was back home in New York, and he was in his apartment, and he was supposed to have a massage. And the massage person came to the door. He didn't answer the door. So then she um, used her key or something. I, I don't re really remember that part, but like basically they came inside. They discovered his dead body. Right, He was laying on the bed, unconscious. I think they actually rushed him to the hospital where then he was declared dead. And they found that his body contained like a an overdose of not only like sleeping pills, but also like mood stabilizers. And I think he might have even been suffering from depression. And okay. so his his body was wrecked, right? And what's really horrifying is the fact that he was only 29 years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was young. Like, by comparison, I'm 35. And, like, I still think of him as older than me. So the fact that he was only 29 is completely heartbreaking because it's like, think about the career he was having at that point, you know? I mean, he had been in 10 Things I Hate About You got kind of started with that and then he was in you know the the beautiful angley brokeback mountain where he played mm -hmm. that conflicted uh you know um character um and then of course he he you know he does his magnum opus with the dark knight and then that's it i mean obviously i'm underselling I mean, he had a lot of other films he was in like what a knight's tale and everything but just the fact that he was a guy on the rise and was going to have this massively successful career. And then it was cut short by the, you know, these, these just really unfortunate factors that just, you know, fell into play. And, you know, here's the other interesting thing about Nolan and the, specifically the Batman films. So tragedy befell the Dark Knight, of course, with the death of Heath Ledger, right? And then, of course, um, when The Dark Knight Rises premiered, there was the whole shooting in Aurora, Colorado, with James Holmes, who was dressed up as the Joker. Where, you know, he they were at the midnight premiere, uh -huh. and he went into the theater and shot all those people and killed, like, 13 of them, including a child. And, I mean, it was it was horrifying. And so, poor, poor the Dark Knight, poor Batman, poor Nolan. I mean, the, oh God, just the whole like PR team, and mm -hmm. how, you know how you spin all that, and just sort of this—it's almost like a curse was upon them. And it's very, very strange. And I don't know how anybody like comes back from that. But I so, agree. yeah, that's what I wanted to say about Heath, Heath Ledger—the fact that he absolutely did not kill himself. And, you know, the, the really sad part was that he, um, you know, he and Michelle Williams had gotten divorced, but they, of course, had their child, Matilda Rose, 
who was, uh-huh. I think at the time was only like two or three years old. Yes, I think so too. So, I mean, now she would be what, 12, 13? Something like that, I think. She looks a lot like Heath Ledger. I, I saw photos of Michelle Williams with her, and and I was like, damn, that, that's Heath Ledger in, in a girl's body, you know? <laughs> because they, they, look pre, they look pretty alike. They, they, it must be kind of uh, sad for Michelle Williams to, you know, see in her daughter uh, the, the person she loved the most for a time, but like, right. Uh, Heath Ledger. So yeah, it's, 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 you know, and we remember him every time she sees her daughter and maybe, no, I don't know. That's, it's sad. It's not it's, just that. It's also that the Joker continues to have such a huge presence in popular culture. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, you know, We've obviously had Suicide Squad and Jared Leto's uh, Joker, but um, it still seems to be like this Heath Ledger's Joker is always still the, the one that we, you know, most favor and remains still relevant even after the other Batman films that have, that have come out. So there is sort of no escaping from his presence and to think that as well and not only do you have the the problem of seeing you know well that's you you know seeing your the person you lost in in your child in their appearance uh, maybe even the you know their character traits or mannerisms or uh, personality but you've also got to deal with that um since you know in popular culture so I can't, it, it must be heartbreaking, but uh, she, is, she is a very, she comes across as a very strong woman, so, yeah, um, which, you know, um, it's a very, it's a very sad tale, like you were, you were just explaining about, um, I knew, I heard that he, you know, had obviously taken a, a drug overdose, but, you know, it, it's always painted as they they were try, you know, when celebrities do this, that they were um, the the issues of fame got to them, and and you know the whole curse of um, Hollywood and and celebrity culture. So we don't really realise that how demanding, especially method acting is. Yeah. Not not just physically, uh, but psychologically as well. Uh, because you've, you know, you really do have to become that character, uh, whether it's losing, you know, you losing weight, gaining weight. Um, you know, what I think uh, Robert De Niro to get into character for uh, Raging Bull uh, had to actually change his complete diet and then put on, you know, pounds and pounds within a short amount of time. So it's, and, you know, we don't really give actors, especially, you know, Heath Ledger, we don't really give them enough credit for what they, they've done. And it isn't until, you know, they tragically meet their end unexpectedly that they get some sort of, 
praise, which is a bit bit right. of a sad. Well, there, there was two two thoughts that immediately come to mind when you're talking about um, dying or you know overdose stuff. I immediately think as well of Philip Seymour Hoffman and what happened to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you know, and the fact that, and now this is just a weird like side note is that the fact that both of them overdosed on the island of Manhattan in New York, you know, and they not too far from each other. Like I think where Heath Ledger's apartment was to where Philip Seymour Hoffman's apartment was less than a mile. But there was also talk of um, for a while that Philip Seymour Hoffman was going to star as the Penguin in the next Batman film mm. after um which was going to be directed by Christopher Nolan but when then went on to be you know to star Tom Hardy as Bane there was a lot of um debate after you know sort of in between the dark knight and the dark knight rises of who's you know which is the next villain going to be yeah and lots of hype was you know the fans wanted it to be Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, which I can't, you know, I can only imagine how his penguin would have been, you know, amazing. No, so, yeah, I could just picture it in my mind right now. That and, would that uh, would have been. I mean, you look at the work that he did in Capote, for instance. I was thinking the master is oh, yeah. uh, superb, but um, yeah, it's it's a, like you were saying, just it's the striking sort of. Similar, similar, similarities mm-hmm. between. <laughs> I got there in the end. Between both, both cases. It's... Well, plus the irony. So um, to bring that back to the Oscars, the fact that in two thousand five, right, uh, everybody thought the Oscar race was between Heath Ledger for Brokeback Mountain and Philip Seymour Hoffman for Capote. So there's a little bit of uh, irony there, too. But then the other thought that I had when you're talking about weight gain and weight loss and bringing it back to Christopher Nolan is Christian Bale, who is known for doing that sort of thing. You know, he'll lose weight for a role. He'll gain weight for a role. He'll lose muscle. He'll he'll lose um, fat. He'll gain fat. He'll gain muscle. I mean, he like he bulked up to play Batman. And then he got super fat for um, American Hustle. Yeah. And then he got really skinny for The Machinist. And also for, um, oh, gosh, um, that film with the the brothers, uh, with Mark Wahlberg. Oh, oh yes. Uh, yeah. The Fighter. The Fighter. The Fighter, yeah. yes. Yeah, Which, he's completely unrecognizable. He won the Oscar for that. Yeah. Uh, that's what I feel with Nolan, that um, a lot of the actors are willing to go that way for a Nolan film. You, um, to, It's not just, uh, you know, Tom Hardy, again, is another um, method actor. And he, I, I, I think that it's, it's a sign of how good Christopher Nolan is when directing uh, and um, coaching his actors that he has and the roles that he, you know, the characters that he creates, people are willing to um, really get into the shoes of those characters and um, take on, 
you know some serious changes to their lifestyles in order to to get the best performance and that's a you don't just do that for any old director you know uh don't sort of do that for michael bay or you know what i mean it's it's yeah i i don't I, I'm not out to myself, but there are certain roles, certain people you would want to to work under, and I, I get the impression that Christopher Nolan's a good director to work for because actors keep coming back to him time after time. So yeah, he definitely a, he he does seem to have like like regulars the way that some other directors do. Like Wes Anderson, he's got his regulars, you know. Mm. And uh, Christopher Nolan has his regulars. And I like that because then you can kind of picture ahead, oh, he's going to write a new film. What's it going to be? Who's going to be in it? And then you can just kind of picture in your mind, oh, what might it look like, you know? Um, so what – okay, let's let's talk about Interstellar for a moment. So, uh, Joel, I want to hear from you first, then B. What are your guys' impressions of Interstellar? It's a controversial film. You know, uh, some people uh, love it, some people hate it. Uh, I love it. Uh, because I, I, I have never found trouble with, with, with a Nolan film uh, after discovering, right, uh, uh, Memento, Insomnia, uh, The Prestige, of course. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a film that, for me, it gets better with rewatch. Like, the experience of watching it in theaters was amazing because it's, 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 it's like Dunkirk. That, that it's a film that's made for theaters. And it was amazing, uh, the, the, the whole thing of time, of time and, and going to space uh, and learning that, you know, uh, uh, the protagonist was the responsible for everything that happened in the movie. Uh, you know, in, people ha- that have seen it know what I'm talking about. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that, that's that was mind blowing for me. It, it was a, a, a pretty great experience, and it's a movie that I can watch anytime, and I will still love it. You know, it, even though its its runtime is pretty. Uh, long. 169 minutes. Yeah, and I, I don't feel them, the, the 169 minutes. I, I just sit there and watch it and and then crying as always in the end. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, 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 a very, it's a very amazing experience. I, I love that movie so much. Very nice. Alright, B, what do you think? Uh, I I, I adore I adore Interstellar. I have the same sort of reaction to it as Joel has. Um, I for me it's kind of personal because of the the whole father daughter relationship. Um, I lost my father when I was very young, and uh, um, to see Matthew McConaughey's character, he's driven by his love to get back to his children, especially the, his bond he has with his with Murph. Um, and the ending is so powerful for me. Um, 
Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional as I talk about it. It just, I just remember the the feeling after I finished watching it at, in the cinema, and that's what I, again, which Nolan managed to manages to engage with his audiences and, and provokes these reactions to his films. Um, and it's a it's a really good it's a very good film and it has such an interesting message like uh, you know um, about taking care of our environment um but it doesn't get to the point where it's preachy um but there's just so, so many powerful scenes in that movie and i think everybody gives uh, excellent performance even Matt Damon. So uh, <laughs> I know there was just such a shock for him to be in that film. Um, it was just like because there was no sort of mention of him in the movie. He wasn't in the trailers, and then they get they arrive on that planet, and it's like Matt Damon. What? <laughs> <laughs> so I really, really like Interstellar. So uh, I think it's one of those films that is probably going to be uh but in in a few years time we we will uh there'll be a, a newfound love for it i feel like uh it it's it divided quite a few people but i think it will um once we reflect on it and give it time we'll realize just how much of a classic it is it's funny that uh you you talk about the love uh theme in Interstellar, and that was the thing that divided the film for people. Like there were people that hate it, and there are people they love it because of that particular scene. Yeah, um, I know. Uh, and I think people wanted it very. They they wanted it to be quite straightforward sci-fi. They wanted there to be a almost a scientific explanation as to why the events happen, and at down to you know, when it gets down to it, what drives yeah. him is, is love and uh, the duty of a father and uh, the caring for your child. It's, there isn't really a scientific explanation as to why the wormhole even appeared. Exactly. Why, why should there be? There doesn't need to be. Sometimes less is more. And the more that we explain a, a, a film and reasons behind certain things appearing it kind of loses its magic to it yeah that that that, that kind of really is what happened to uh oh my god uh night Shyamalan, that he oh yes in his later films he used to explain everything to everyone and it's it's like this uh challenge to people that that they they can't understand by their own so let me explain them to them mm, it's very patronizing yeah, that's that's problematic, and Nolan at least doesn't do that, and and it works. You know, it, it, I love the the love angle in in Interstellar because it made it more real for me. Like, it's more relatable. It's more uh, like it's more human, and I think that it's something that we're missing as a society right now. We need more humane feelings, more uh, uh, empathy, and yes. caring for other people. And 
Interstellar does that in a way, you know. Mm. Uh, that's why that's I think that's why one of the reasons I love that film so much because it 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 doesn't rely only on its sci-fi elements, which are pretty good for me. Yeah, uh, but also has that touch of uh, of humanity that makes it pretty unique and a special film that, like you said, uh, will be studied for uh, generations to come, and and people will have it in a higher position than it was first uh, received when, well, when it came out. Uh-huh. It's a it's a story which is basically it's been told before in the form of the Odyssey. Um, I don't know how well you kn- you know Homer's Odyssey with the story oh, yeah. of Odysseus, mm-hmm. but his whole thing is coming back to his family. That's what drives him, and mm-hmm. it's a concept of love and a concept of duty and responsibility of being a parent, so he can get back to his son uh, and get back to his wife. Uh, but mostly, mostly, what drives him is. The fact that he hasn't seen his son for over 20 years. And it's, you know, he's only on this island in the middle of the Greek Sea. But, you know, it goes through all of these challenges, um, uh, fighting, you know, gods and uh, interstellar is really just the odyssey, but for the 21st century audience. Wow. I. I have read the Odyssey. Uh, it was I was in I think in ninth grade when I read it, uh, and yeah, I, I have never thought of the of Interstellar being the Odyssey for for us for the twenty first century audience, and it, make, it makes so much sense. And I love this interpretation. Uh, then now now I'm gonna watch Interstellar with that <laughs> in mind. So thank you so much for for that. Uh, uh, for that uh, comment, uh, be because I just yeah I yeah, um, it, I, I studied classical civilization um, at at college, so okay. you you do get this um, these. It's amazing to see how we're still telling the same stories all these years later um, because they're just so strong and have such a strong connection. Because there's nothing more wonderful about fighting for love and even in inception you have the whole maze and going into the maze and the, a lot of nolan's work is rooted within um greek mythology mm-hmm. so um yeah it's actually very interesting and maybe i will write about it don't steal my idea <laughs> no no don't worry don't worry that's all yours uh, that's why I, I, I you know I hope that people that hear this uh, uh, think about that and now watch Nolan films with other uh, uh, point of view in mind. Uh, I, I, that's why I love film discussion because uh, when people talk uh, about their, their what, what they witnessed, what they felt about a movie uh, or what they related to, it, it makes me open the... the open my mind to other interpretations and and it makes me love the film more because it's it, it's so uh, it's so good that that people can 
we were different, but love it at the same time. It's it's amazing. Uh, I I love that interpretation. B, thank you very much for that. <laughs> Here are some of my thoughts about uh, Interstellar. Um, so, first, I'm going to tell you a little story about when I first saw the film back in November 2014. Mm-hmm. I went and saw it with Julia, who's been on this podcast, and Joel, you know Julia. Yeah. Uh, my roommate, and um, we went and saw it. We loved it, right? We came back to the house. We were we were buzzing about that film, right? Like, that's the kind of movie that just, like, gets your blood pumping. And you feel it, and your brain is just like, it, it's like having a, uh, you know, like a natural high. And so we're sitting there in the living room, and we're talking about Interstellar, and we're trying to break down what it meant and the whole ending of the film and all that stuff. And we had such an ironic disagreement that it literally turned into a ridiculous, pointless fight. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, not like a fist fight, but like an like an you know like a no a discussion fight. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, like an argument <laughs> fight. Argument, right, exactly. and we were actually yelling at each other, and we're like. Well, why the hell would you say that and such and such, you know, and how, you know, how could you blah, 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 and how dare you, and are you calling me (laughs) stupid? Why, you don't think I understood the movie? And it was just like, what are these weird things? And and, and then we, like, we took a break, and we're like, we we apologize. It was still Twitter in a nutshell, right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Very, very keen observation. But, (laughs) I mean, so we, we, we took a break, we apologized to each other, we started having a more calm, rational discussion, right? And the thing uh-huh. is, she was right. I I remember, okay, here's the thing. Like, sometimes when I'm watching a movie, if uh-huh. I'm so into it, I'm not paying attention to the details. Okay. And so she had paid attention to the details, and I totally missed a lot of the stuff she said. So when we were talking about something like the Tesseract, I had no idea what she even meant. And I got confused. And she says, no, love is what saved them. And I'm like, it wasn't love. It was that freaking, it was gravity. And it was the freaking this. And it was that. She goes, no, it was this. And it was that. I'm like, how, no, you're wrong. And I was just like, <laughs> so it was this epic, epic battle. But um, yeah, it's, it's so funny. So that, so that happened, right? But, you know, the thing that I took away after the first viewing the, uh, was, one, the camera movements. And, you know, cinematography, I think a lot of people, when they think cinematography, they simplify it to a point that it's unfair. Because what cinematography truly is, it's not just the look of the film, but it's also the, the, the framing of the shots mm-hmm. and the movements of the camera. The lightning. Yeah. And... I believe it's Hoyt. Palettes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think it's Hoyt Van Hoytema that filmed. Uh, no, or, yeah, no, it must have been Hoyt Van Hoytema because I know he's worked with Wally Pfister, but I think that. Um, it's Hoyt, Hoyt Van, Ho- Van Hoytema, yes. Yeah. It was the first collaboration. For, wait, yes, first collaboration with, with okay. Nolan. Well, mm-hmm. Hoyt Van Hoytema shot mm-hmm. the hell out of that film. And specifically, the, the moment, like, okay, so. The whole stuff where the music is really amping up, the Hans Zimmer score, you know, Mm -hmm. you get that haunting, haunting score from Hans Zimmer. Mm 
and like they're flying through the space crystals. You know, you see like the planet is right below them as they're trying to escape off that planet. And like they're they're moving through and you like see this one image in particular and you can see in the trailer where like the camera shifts and they they stay upright but the camera dutch angles hmm. you know you know the shot i'm talking about yeah yeah and i'm just like i i still think of that shot in that film with the music blasting and i'm just like oh my god you know it just gives me like goosebumps cuz it is is genius and the thing is okay so i know that a lot of people have a problem with the way that the film develops sort of the uh characterization sort of the explanations of things but you know christopher nolan is never has never really been one to to get bogged down in the the details you know he's not that kind of guy he's not like like you're right he's more like stanley kubrick he he doesn't explain a whole lot you just have to go with it because there's a lot, I mean, I could break down Interstellar, and I have sometimes, and I think, boy, there's a lot of plot holes, or there's a lot of problems with that film. You know, the fact that, for instance, the planet is dying, and 30 years pass, and the planet is still dying. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, where are the stakes exactly in the beginning? But I don't care, because the way that he sets it up, you know, I mean, like, if you think about it, the film wouldn't work otherwise because you have to have the time difference. So the planet has to be dying at the beginning of the film just like it is at the end of the film. Remember, nature moves slowly, so... It does. Yeah, the, the planet, it's dying, but it's not, like, dying tomorrow. It's, it's you know, I don't know what... It's, uh, nature moves slowly, so yeah, yeah. That's how I understood it when, yeah. when I saw it. Yeah. So, so you know, there's that, and and just the fact that like they they just discovered NASA on its own. Like, why wouldn't why wouldn't they just invite them to NASA and be like, hey, uh, Mister um, Sciency Guy, why don't you come and join us? <laughs> we we have a mission for you. You know. Well, all right, you know, all right. <laughs> all right, all right. I think I'll do that. <laughs> That's what I love about those space girls. I get older, they stay the same age. Remember, he invited himself. Right. You know, actually, I have to change that. It's exactly the opposite. Those those girls get older and he stays the same age. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anyway. um, He invited himself. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know... But the other thing that 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 uh, I think about every once in a while when I think about Interstellar is that Dylan Thomas poem, and so it goes like this: Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learn too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death 
who see with blinding sight. Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I mean, when you pit that with the music from Hans Zimmer, good God. I mean, he tapped into something that is just emotional and has so much weight to it, you know, and... and you know, that that was already a famous poem. I mean, people know that, at least the rage against the dying of the light. But when he brought it back, I, I just was like, wow. You know, and especially in that moment where Matt Matt Damon has just crushed his, his, you know, that hole in his spacesuit, and he's slowly dying. And he's thinking about, do not go into that light, you know, rage against the dying of the light. And I thought, wow, I mean, that is just poetic, you know. And and that's what really put it over the top for me. The fact that he was able to, to, to meld those two, the poem with that moment, those scenes, mm. you know. And just how genius that is, you know. It's, it's a bit like Inception as well, when we have um, the... Uh, no regrets. Um, I've forgotten the name of the lady who sings it. Uh, uh, oh, Edith, uh, Edith Piaf. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, it's this powerful way that he chooses little bits of uh, snippets from certain um, quotes, poems, songs that are rooted well and within our culture that we recognize them on a daily basis even if we've not we don't fully know it we're not fully conscious of it and he draws our attention to it and makes us real like reassess them again and re uh read them again and and, and be find a new meaning to them because that's what's you know the words to to non je regrette ren i can't speak french uh so apologies my French teacher will be disappointed with that. Uh, <laughs> I can't speak there, French either. No, uh, there is this sort of. Um, there is a regret, though, that, that is going on. Re- regret is a theme that continues throughout Christopher Nolan, uh, uh, you know, his films. So, especially Inception. Uh, the gr- regret is there that Cobb didn't do enough to to save his wife. Uh, that his actions, uh, you know, to led to the death her death, and uh, as a result, he can't see his children. Um, so what what Nolan's doing is is bringing the fact that characters and their motives aren't always something that we can trust. Uh, and uh, you know what their point point of view, and often they're saying one thing, but then do a completely different thing altogether. Uh, so, what I, you know, that is something that what is so profound with, like you're saying, we don't know the real reason behind 
certain offence. We don't, you know, but that's not something that we really should be paying attention to, because the bigger picture is more important. Uh, you know, that it's not a interstellar is not a story about saving a, a dying planet. It's it's more. It is and it isn't. It's the same with with Inception. It, it's there's layers to everything, and that's what makes a Nolan film so good. Because we think it's about one thing, and then we go back and we rewatch it for another. That's why all of his films deserve multiple um, viewings, and then we discover it's about something else. And that's what you get with Kubrick films as well. Uh, especially with The Shining, it's not a horror film. You know, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Room Two Three Seven. Oh, I haven't yet, but it, I, I've been meaning to. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the fact that there was all those weird things. theories. Yeah, yeah. but what, that's the same. Have you seen it? With... No, I haven't seen it yet. Okay. <laughs> well. Um, just to summarize the documentary, which I really recommend, um, it's lots and it's several different theory, people's opinions and their theories about what The Shining is. So it ranges from the insane that it's actually Kubrick confessing to being behind the space landings, the moon landings. Um, and then it's people saying, actually, it's about the Holocaust. No, it's about the genocide of the Native Americans. No, it's about the collapse of the family units and um, about the decline in the nuclear family. And I think, is it about any of those things? We we, we don't know. Uh, we don't have Kubrick to explain it. But that's what's so beautiful about it is that we can read it. Everybody has a different experience to it. It's the uh-huh. same Nolan's work. We all have different experiences to how we are how we view those movies and that's what is so good about Nolan he is a magician you know he is some you know like the prestige he's playing us and he's it's he's showing us one thing but then doing another and the end result is something that we completely didn't expect um so that's my best way of summing Nolan up is that he's a magician (laughs) I like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, I got two last main questions to ask you guys about uh, Nolan. Okay. First one being, what is your favorite film of his? Oh, so tough. (laughs) Uh, My heart wants to say Inception, but then my mind is still buzzing from the impact of Dunkirk so uh, but if I had to choose if you were like putting like a gun against my head I would have to say Inception yeah I will have to say Inception too Uh, I like both uh, Dunkirk and Inception they're my top two films from Christopher Nolan but Inception, Inception is a film that every time I watch it, uh, I learn something new. Mm. And I have wanted to write an interpretation of the film for so long. But every time I watch it, 
I found another interpretation. So <laughs> I never end up writing anything because of that. So one of these days you're you're gonna read something about it from me, but not now, you know, because I I need to watch it again to find another interpretation. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but th- that's why it's okay. my number one film, and it's even one of my top ten films all time. Inception. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, mine is still The Dark Knight. Um, I just love that movie. The Joker, to me, is one of the best characters of all time. Mm. And just those little things, you know, like when when he, uh, when he when the Joker, for instance, shows up at the Bruce Wayne party and he's, you know, he's looking at everybody and he's just got that look on his face and you can't really tell what he's thinking. You can't tell if he's happy or angry. <laughs> or or even like when um the is it the uh, the the woman the woman gets into her car and she sees that note and it just says look up and she looks up and the car explodes. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. I mean the timing of that film is is immaculate. Uh so my favorite is still The Dark Knight, but yeah, I mean Inception is oh my god. It is so damn good. Um, and then, okay, so my next question then is then, so we obviously, he's tackled a lot of different genres and topics and stuff, but what would you pick for Nolan to do next? Oh, I want to say musical. No! (laughs) No, no, think about it. Think about how amazing that would be, because it wouldn't be a musical. You think it's going to be a musical, and at the end, it's like something completely different. <laughs> it turns out to be, uh, you know, uh, a discussion on the corruption of, I don't know, greed in Ro- the Roman Empire or something. It's like oh, there'll oh. be something really obscure, and you'll be like, wait a second, I thought I was watching a musical, and then you'll be like, oh, Nolan, I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a great answer. Well, my, I think, damn, I think I want him to do another indie like he used to do before, like Memento, Insomnia. Uh, and I want it to be protagonized by a woman. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. 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 She's yeah. amazing in that. Like, almost like a sort of, a semi, some sort of sequel or something. Like... Because I feel like those two films exist in the same universe, almost. Like, mm-hmm. they seem like... And be amazing. Imagine, like, a crossover where characters from Memento meet the characters from Insomnia. That could work really well. And then it's all, like, turns out it's all part of a dream. And they were actually in Inception <laughs> all along. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> that was amazing. But yeah, something like that. Uh, something not so blockbustery, uh, uh, more uh, uh, deep in, in his roots. And yeah, something about a woman. I, I don't know. Something, something very different from him in, 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 what, he, in what he has done lately. Uh, I would like to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, 
this might be my answer for just about every director, <laughs> but I always want to see somebody do a Western. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh, a Western by Christopher Nolan would be amazing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And how about this? It's a Western starring women. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's good. With the musical that number. <laughs> Just the lannies. Well, you could have a musical number in there because they could go to like the salon, a saloon, yeah. and then there could be like, uh, you know, this amazing musical number going on, and then at the end there'll be some sort of crazy twist. <laughs> like yeah. uh, it all falls apart, and they're all actually robots, and it turns out he's directing <laughs> an episode for Westworld. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, see, the thing is, like, I just rewatched James Mangold's Pretend to Yuma. Okay. Wow. I forgot just how great that movie is. I have never watched it. A shame, a shame, a shame. (laughs) Pretend to Yuma is really good. And, ooh, how about this for a connection? It stars Christian Bale. Uh, I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I... I see. I would like to see more, like you say, we're westerns. I do feel like there is a a, a need to have them back, a resurgence mm-hmm. almost, because it's been a, a genre which has essentially died out. But we've seen sort of Django Unchained come back. We've seen Slow West. We've seen, obviously, Westworld. Um, Hell to High Water. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing all of the, you know, there's yeah. uh, almost a need because the Western is actually something that I think Nolan could really do quite well, especially mm-hmm. the story because it fundamentally is a story about um, chaos, isn't it? Really, usually there's a, a sheriff. Let's say the sheriff is uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio or Matthew McConaughey. Um, and then small town, everything's fine. He's obviously a widow uh, because something happened to his wife. Uh, I'm trying <laughs> to picture it like a Nolan film. And then you get a unexpected and um, unstoppable force of chaos. You know, whether it be Bane or the Joker, like or, you know, something that appears in in Nolan's films time and time again. So. The, all the traits are there and you know all the the plot points are there for nolan to use it's just mm-hmm. whether you know what what he's who wants to do next but certainly a western would be amazing yeah and with like you say maybe a female west led western like with jessica chastain oh i would now love... you, now you sold it <laughs> I, I would it. love to see a collaboration <laughs> of Jessica Chastain and Amy Adams. I wouldn't know oh which one was which because they they have <laughs> both have red hair. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm hoping you're hearing this because these are the perfect pitches. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Into West. Yeah. Does, is, That's is what Chris- it's called. <laughs> is Christopher Nolan even on Twitter? Because we could just tag him. I no, know. he's not on Twitter. He, oh, he's not damn it. Social, social. <laughs> uh, he's, he is Twitter. 
hooked up. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, he's probably too busy um, actually he writing. Have, he doesn't have a, a, a cell phone, I think. That's amazing. See, that's what we need to do. Well, obviously, that's why, where we're all going wrong. We need to disconnect from the world and go off the grid, and then we'll be able to make films with Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, amen. It, so it'd be like that scene in um, Interstellar where they find, they find the NASA, when they find NASA, but we'll find Christopher Nolan. <laughs> and he'll be like, come on board, guys. We're going to make this Western. And they're into West. <laughs> oh, I want it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything you guys wanted to, to else to say about Nolan? Um, I'm just excited that he's finally got a, a you know, a, a really good chance of winning the Oscar for Best Director. Um, because he really deserves it. And he's proven that time after time with so many movies. And um, if they don't, then I'm I'm just going to cry. Mm. I, I, might, I might have to take to my bed in protest until, <laughs> yeah. until we, you know, like with uh, John Lennon sort of and Yoko, they, they tried to stop the Vietnam War by going to bed for a year. That's how it's going to be, but my, I'm going to try and get Nolan an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Joel? Any last thoughts? Nah, I, I just want to say that I love him so much, and I'm hoping for that Western with female leads, Jessica Sustain and Amy Adams, is his next film. So, yeah, I'll be with waiting. The, with the musical number. <laughs> with the musical number, the saloon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I have anything else really to add either. I just, I mean, okay. The only thing I guess I would say is that um, I wish, that, now this could be a whole long conversation, but for the sake of my last thought, it's just I wish that he would figure out how to better do his sound mixing. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Because he, were gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, he has a way of overpowering his dialogue with music. Mm, and yes. I, I just don't get it. Yeah, and, and to think that people are predicting Dunkirk to win sound mixing, is, it's, it's kind of uh, weird to me because you can't hear Tom Hardy talking in Dunkirk, okay? You you know he's talking because you, you hear the mumbling, but you don't understand the mumbling unless you have subtitles. So <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> it's it's it, it it's it's I don't understand it how people can think that he's a favorite. Uh, sorry, Dunker is a favorite to win some mixing. Uh, no, I think someone something like Blade Runner twenty forty nine or The Shape of Water, which I haven't seen yet. Uh, has more chance of winning that uh, Dunkirk. I, I don't even have any of the first three options to win it. So, so yeah. Uh, sound editing, of course, because uh, sound editing is marvelous always in in Nolan films. Uh, you can go from Dunkirk to Interstellar and Inception and all the Dark Knight films. Mm-hmm. And the sound editing is amazing. Sound mixing, on the other hand, 
needs a lot of work, or right. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, I think we should wrap it up, right? What do you guys oh, yes. think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, can I just say I I promised someone I would give them a shout out. Absolutely, go ahead. Um, so I just want to say hi, Rob. Uh, he listened to us while he was at work, and he was very complimentary and said I, it was very funny. So uh, we've got a fan. So yay! Uh, yay. Hi, Rob. <laughs> 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 I hope so uh, yeah I said I would do that just be, just because <laughs> I'm nice and also it was his birthday at the beginning of this month so uh, oh, oh happy, happy birthday, birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go I've, I've got him a birthday present so very know. cool <laughs> <laughs> all right well I think that'll wrap us up then on the on this episode 14 of the filmotomy podcast Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back with you next time. Chagrin, mes plaisirs, je n'ai plus besoin de balayer les amours avec leur trémolo, balayer pour toujours, je repars à zéro. Ça commence